in Japan, it's sort of this I am legend type scenario where the wild animals are kind of taking over these small towns. <laughs> Japan had over 150 bear attacks last year. Really? Oh, it's crazy. They have like five bear species. They have a brown bear. People are being attacked and mauled and eaten in Japan at a rate that is 10 times greater than all of the United States. It is insane. That is like, fascinating. Can you imagine? We have like 15 grizzly attacks and people in Wyoming and Montana and Idaho are like, it's over. I'm not going outside anymore. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Imagine 150. Right. In an area much smaller. 150 and basically the, you know, in Wyoming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I think some of that is probably going to occur where, you know, there's going to be yeah. areas that people vacate and the wild animals are like, Hey, thanks for the keys. I'm going to take over now. <laughs> <laughs> These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. Sig is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, Sig Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, Sig Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military, the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. So I think for most backcountry hunts, you don't actually need food. Like nobody's going to probably <laughs> die in 10 days without food. But on the other hand, coffee, yeah. Pretty important. Yeah. What's your, it's kinda, what, what's your move for like backpack, even <laughs> like truck camping coffee? Dude, okay, this is comical. And I don't want to call anyone out here, but I got a, a message this week that was like, so we had some pour over type coffees in the um in the box. And someone was like, I would never take this in the backcountry. I'm like, to each their own, right? Um, but for me, um, <laughs> like there's a certain morale boost that comes from some things. And I don't want to call it an addiction, but like some dudes can of chew in the back country is like a life changer. Right. And I can actually go a few days without coffee, but goddamn, on that third day, when I drink a cup of coffee, it is like the most miraculous thing I've ever tasted. And it's like, okay, all is right with the world. So for me, like a good cup of coffee is pretty crucial. I actually don't like, I'll do the instant coffees and things like that, but man, some of those pour overs or like setting up a good pour over, like a good cup of coffee is just, it's a game changer, man. Do you bring any kind of like vacuum container? Um, or is it just like a, a tin cup, titanium cup, jet mm. boil? 
I run a GSI. So I, I run a jet oil and a GSI, like I have a GSI coffee cup, right? I also have a GSI pour over filter uh, that is usually like floating around somewhere. If it depends on how, like what we're calling that country. Like if we were going super deep and I was worried about weight, I'd probably just like drink a black rifle instant coffee uh, stick out of a green belly bag and call that coffee. You know, like yeah. that's fine. It'll, I'll live, but it just, I guess it depends. Like everyone's version of backcountry is different. A lot of my backcountry these days is like a dips in and out. And so I may stay overnight and then I get back to the truck or something and I have a good cup of coffee, a jet boil, something up, do a pour over, uh, you know, something like that. So I have multiple versions. Uh, the little, the little tea bag things, man, if I'm, if I'm being a, uh, super badass road hunter, then, you know, grabbing some jet boil, boiling water and putting like the tea bag versions of coffee. Those are actually pretty good too. So, you know, everyone's like, Oh, this is backcountry. That is, I don't know what is backcountry or not backcountry, uh, <laughs> but like I will have all versions of coffee. Cause sometimes I don't like getting the full bag of like grocery store coffee and putting it in the GSI. It makes a giant mess. So the little tea bag things are amazing. Uh, sometimes I literally put like a black rifle stick of the instant in a cold water bottle and chug it. Cause I'm merely looking for the caffeine and not the coffee. Yeah. I've poured that stuff straight into my mouth before when I didn't have <laughs> enough water to be able to spare on coffee, but I also needed the coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, I went mule deer hunting in the back country this year. I'll call it back country and I'll even define it. How about them apples? <laughs> <laughs> so I think if you can't hoof it out in a day with your old left foot, right foot, then you're in the back country. If you can hoof it out in a day, you're in the front. Mm, I like that. That's fair. I mean, uh, who was it? There's probably, I should know this, but someone said like wilderness is uh, a state of mind or a state of, I don't know, somewhere, somewhere along those lines. Like the dude that comes from New York city, like central park is almost the wilderness to that dude. Sure. Like he just doesn't know. Right. But like to you and I we're like, well, shit, I can get to the pickup in you know, five, six hours. I'm not really that far in like, yeah. what's the worst that can happen. I'm not even going to bring a sleeping bag. I'll just yeah. hike out if it gets bad, you know, but there's people that get to a trailhead and like, we're going three miles in. This is like, this is the thing we're doing. The thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want to take away from that experience, but that's no. the front. Um, that's the front country. And there's nothing wrong with the front country. Huge fan of it. Thinks that's where people need to be spending their time. You know, there's another move for, for hot beverages. And this is not at all the topic of this <laughs> podcast, but <laughs> um, I was uh, doing some whitewater stuff when I lived in Norway. And this river actually came out from underneath of a glacier and then flowed down a, a short, steep run into a fjord. Um, so to say that this water was cold is, <laughs> is the truth, right? It don't get a whole lot colder. It was going from the ice to the you know North Atlantic Ocean. So what the Norwegians there drank for warmth, um, and they did the same thing when they were skiing in the, you know, all the trail systems and stuff around in the wintertime, is they would actually just use broth instead of coffee, like the instant yeah. beef broth things. Yeah. Um, Dude, that's, that's uh, a <laughs> so really funny nice. story. Uh, my, you, you know my sister, Carly. So uh, Carly... I think she was on a kick of like trying to get rid of coffee or caffeine or something. Anyway, um, she like boiled water and was just drink. I'm like, you're drinking water, like nothing in it, just the water. Right. And I was like, Oh, you know, she's like, yeah. 
a lot of, uh, so a lot of the reason, so I drink coffee all day. And a lot of that reason is almost habit. Like we just like sipping on something warm um, and it becomes very habitual, right? As you, as you do it. Um, but I do the same thing. So I started doing something like on really cold hunts or whatever. Um, if I didn't have coffee or whatever, I would just boil some water and drink hot water. And, you know, that's a survival technique, whatever you, but bone broth is kind of like the next level of that. Cause you bring in a lot of food and stuff. It's easy. You know, all these guys, like we go on back, back country, front country, whatever you want to call it, cold weather hunts. Right. And inevitably you never drink water because it's just, it's not that fun when it's, below zero right? right so like sitting there and glassing with a cup of even hot water is like you know less mess less you know clean up whatever it doesn't you know it's easy boil a cup of hot water and drink that but if you could drop in some like bullion cubes or something like yeah. even better no and you're getting salt out of that too um it's good it, it's a move for sure so there we were talking about hot, hot beverages <laughs> yeah i know i'm not quite done <laughs> because you know, the move for me has been to just use like a titanium cup and, you know, I pour lava temperatured water into it and I can't drink it. And then when I can hold on to that cup and it's cool enough, I can drink and I slam it down and off we go. Right. Yeah. I'm going to go get your eyeball on a spotting scope, but it's nice to like be able to actually carry some warm liquid with you for, for ways, but all this yeah. stuff tends to be fairly heavy. We're going to talk about it at, at the end of the show, but there's uh, um, Stanley, the like green thermos company. Oh, yeah, yeah. They have titanium vacuum containers now that are super oh, light. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, they're sweet. Huh. But anyways, so what we want to talk about today, what I wanted to talk about today is futurology, this, the, which is the, you know, the study of the future and how that pertains to hunting and in what ways technology is or is not going to be a part of that. Um, I want to talk about the future of conservation and what wildlife species might look like in 30 years and what the hunting experience might look like. And yeah. you and I have had long conversations about this. It's something near and dear to both of our hearts. And we've both done some, some reading on it. So yeah. what do you think, Cody, hunting is going to be like in, in 2050 for the general population. So I want to, I want to caveat all this entire podcast with the, the fact that I am not, not an expert, nor do I claim to be on the internet. Uh, so these are going to be like some of my thoughts, ramblings that James and I have from time to time uh, <laughs> somewhere in the middle. I don't know. Like, we're just going to spitball this. So I don't want anybody to come after us and be like, well, this is, you know, this is that like, I don't know, man. I, there's so many places this could go. So many things that could go sideways. The politics involved get real friggin' messy. But let's like hypothetically, you know, Dude, we, talk. We don't even know what the weather's going to be like in 48 hours, yeah. right? This yeah. is a game. If, if somebody <laughs> listens to this in 2050 and comes at me and it's like, hey, man, you're wrong. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's fight about it. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, you know, and so this this concept that the future is coming whether you like it or not um we tend as humans we tend to grasp things that we know um previous experiences uh you know all the you know this is this is what what is normal right but it never turns out that way so the future is always moving technology is always moving whether you like it or not and one of the things that i don't know if it scares me but it's like it's intriguing is the fact that like technology is coming and how that gets ushered in is it is kind of 
up to someone who gives a shit, if that makes any sense. So we tend to like say, man, let's just keep everything the way it is. Keep everything the way it is. Keep everything the way that it is. But what happens is like other people's agendas help technology get ushered in. And so us as old school, fairly conservative dudes that are like, hey, I kind of like the way stuff is going right now. Let's not mess with it. You know, that only opens up the door to some L.A., AI nerd, no offense if you're an LA AI nerd listening to the podcast, but like it opens up their perception of what I do and what the world is to interpretation for that technology. So let's take, uh, I like to use the example of Big Buck Hunter, right? I don't know how Big Buck, Big Buck Hunter is fun. I'll admit it. Like it's fun to play. I like that game, right? Is that the best representation for someone who's never seen hunting to come in and be like, oh yeah, I went hunting one time. I was at this bar at uh, Dave and Buster's and we played Big Buck Hunter. That's their version, right? And so that was just someone who developed games version of what hunting was to them. And it turned out it was fun. It was popular, whatever, for right or wrong, right? So as we talk about technology, I don't know if this is where you're going with it, but like, as we talk about ushering technology into the future, we have to, yes, we have to guard what we have, but we also have to be careful not to let someone else introduce something that it is not. Is that kind of where we're trying to go with this? Yeah, definitely. So as this progresses and as this this virtual experience of hunting tends to occur more and more, hunters need to be involved in shaping that in order to make sure that it's represented in an authentic way. But I don't know if we can. So Elon Musk has, has brought up the point that, you know, it's possible that we're living in a simulation. But if we are, the simulation is more interesting than the world that the simulation is occurring in. Yeah. And he uses the example of um, of action movies. Like if you watch an action movie, it's terrific. It's much more exciting than your life. If you watch an action movie being filmed, it's incredibly boring. It's like a dude on cables with a green screen behind him, like slow motion <laughs> fluttering around a studio. So I think we we need to be really careful of this. And take take novels, for example. If you go back um, a couple hundred years to like The Count of Monte Cristo, uh, Alexander Dumas, that's a huge, huge novel. And if you read that thing, it wanders around. It takes you weeks to read The Count of Monte Cristo. And it's an incredible book. It's an incredible book. But at that time, it was okay to tell a story that wasn't driving everything along a linear line of the narrative towards the conclusion. Mm -hmm. Um, So people were a little bit more comfortable with the experience of everything that happened along the way. Um, That's what hunting is compared to a video game. So a video game about hunting is like, you get out there, you know, you select your weapon out of the archives and then out jumps a deer and you shoot it. Yeah. Um, That's kind of the conclusion. But the experience of hunting, of course, is much more in depth, much more involved. And I believe that technology is going to get us to a point where we're capable of providing the entirety of that experience to somebody who's sitting at home, right? Somebody can have a suit on that is going to let them feel temperature changes, feel wind. You know, they'll be able to to feel like they're hiking. They're going to have a virtual reality headset on that's emitting scents into their nostrils. And um, it's going to control their perceptions of their environment. 
in a way that they feel like they're hunting, but are they going to skip straight to the conclusion? And there's just going to be deer jumping around everywhere and they're shooting at them. Like it's big buck hunter, (laughs) or are they going to have to hike for, you know, 10 days straight in order to find one animal on a hillside where they're using their virtual reality headset to look through a virtual spot and scope to find the virtual animal and then try and figure out what the virtual thermals are going to do to get over there. No, it's interesting stuff. And I like, I, we kind of jumped right into this uh, and that may be prefaced because James and I've had multiple conversations about this. And so we kind of went, we went full deep and I, I don't know if you were trying to get some other stuff about technology and whatnot, like products or whatever, but um, we'll start here and then we'll, maybe we'll go back. I don't know. But uh, the, uh, so this conversation that James and I have had is kind of around like, <clears throat> what does virtual reality look like? If we look at, you know, that's kind of the next thing, right? It's coming like it or not. Uh, pretty soon you'll be able to plug into the matrix and I don't know how many people are going to want to come out of the matrix because it's going to be so much better than the real world. But, you know, my concern with that whole thing is like, does someone turn it into big buck hunter or does someone go, I want to go on a 21 day stone sheep hunt and uh, it's going to take me six hours. But after that six hours, it's going to feel like I was there for 21 days. You know, I'm going to go through the highs and lows. I'm going to have all these emotions. I'm going to have, you know, the struggle fest. I'm going to feel physically fatigued from all of this. You know, like these are crazy things to think about, but like, I wonder if you could do that. And it's like, is that possible? So we've had this conversation and then it's like, man, what's that, what's that do for real stone sheep? Well, one argument is like, man, in, 2050 are there any stone sheep um is that a half million dollar hunt you know like because only the richest can afford it and you know if man i don't know there's so many there's so many rabbit holes we go here but like hypothetically how much does a virtual reality stone sheep hunt cost you know does that put more sheep on the mountain sure and as we see you know growth in government does does our government then have a branch which controls virtual hunting and you have to apply for tags and you have to buy it with credits and you buy this experience. But as far as like condensing a long experience down into a short amount of time, that can sound really bizarre to some people, but I'll give you dreams as an example. Yeah. Right. You can have a dream that feels like you're in it for a very long time, but we know that that's occurring in a REM cycle and it's actually in a matter of seconds. So, so it's definitely possible. Our perception of reality is, is really easy to change. Um, there is an example of a guy who went to um, Silicon Valley to test a virtual reality headset. And he was um, one of the editors of Wired Magazine. All right, this is a tech guy intentionally going to a tech place to test out this headset. Um, So he goes in a room and he puts it on and he looks down at the floor. And as he looks down at the floor, the floor dissolves away from underneath of him. And it appears like he's standing on a very narrow plank. And there's just this cavern descending down into the depths. And off to the side, there's a small ledge. And he leaps towards that ledge in a way that was so predictable that there was two guys in the room standing there ready to catch him. And this occurred within eight seconds of him entering the room. That's crazy. It's so crazy. So he had, he had his cognitive ability, his, his logical perception was so altered so quickly that even though he knew that I'm wearing a virtual reality headset on 
he tried to jump into a flat piece of floor that was right next to him <laughs> in a way that was so predictable that somebody was yeah. there to catch him because that's what every other person had done. Yeah. Um, that's amazing to me. That is yeah. amazing to me that our brains are, are that easy to manipulate and can happen that quickly, even though we have the knowledge that it can and is occurring and are even sub in that guy's case, he was intentionally subjecting himself to it. Yeah, no, and it, dude, that's a, that's some fascinating stuff. I don't think we're all as special snowflakes as we think we are. Um, and so when we talk about man, we went like so deep so fast. Uh, when we talk about like these technologies and let's say you know virtual realities and what they can or can't be, I think there's most of our community is going to most of the guys you and I know for sure uh, are going to reject it completely. Would you agree with that? I think that they'll reject it until somebody that they trust tries it and likes it. Yeah. So let's, let's back up and say, when you get into a lot of these virtual realities, right? One of the problems that virtual reality has is a lot of moral questions. And so when they think about like people who program these things and the same with AI, right? So the artificial intelligence, like community, uh, someone's going to, they always say someone's going to flip a switch and that could change everything. Right. And so you have, when you, let's talk self-driving cars. So self-driving car makes a lot of sense until you get to the trolley cart problem. So the trolley cart problem is like a famous study that essentially uh, you're standing on a train track or a trolley cart or a trolley track and you have to flip a switch. And so this trolley cart's coming down the, the track and say there's an, a 75 year old lady on, laying on one and a group of kids on the other. Which way do you flip the track? Right. And so these become moral questions that humans have to answer, but AI doesn't necessarily, well, they do. And there's a lot of studies that go into that. So when we take AI into smart driving cars, car swerving, uh, does the smart car avoid the collision with another car or does it hit a pedestrian? Obvious answer, right? So these are all like micro decisions that humans make um, that have kind of been wired into us over a lot of years, right? And we don't always make the best one. So as these are like these questions, right? And so I think the same thing gets held true to virtual reality. Like you could, this goes so deep and it goes so far down that rabbit hole of like, what is morally right? And how are we writing that code or how are we writing that program to say this is right or this is wrong or, you know, what, what to do in what situation. Um, so I don't know the hell is going with that, but uh, long story short, it's like all these things come into this technology and as we progress, like, I think the right people could help produce hunting version of virtual reality into taking the right steps or doing the right things or like bigger, the bigger picture. Like, how do we help the bigger picture? So in the short term, before we get to this hypothetical level of technology where somebody stays at home, yeah. somebody else has to go out and harvest the data to be input into this experience. Yeah, James right? and I are signing up for that if anyone's looking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. You know, we could be we could be Prometheus in that case where, you know, we bring fire and it seems like a really good idea. And then uh, next thing you know, they're making nuclear bombs. It was like, oops. Um, yeah, these guys took it too far. <laughs> I did not see that coming. Uh, so what what do you see as like the biggest or biggest problems? Like not hurdles, but problems with a virtual reality hunting. So there's a great amount of vulnerability that is going to come with any type of virtual reality that provides an experience that is superior to normal life or, mm -hmm. or seems like it. 
And I think the biggest problem is that once you're in it, you could potentially stay in it as long as there's electricity to keep you in it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because how would you know if within a matter of seconds, that one guy believed that he was in it enough that he had to jump to a ledge in a cavern. Yeah. Um, once we're in it, how do we know that we're in it at that point? Yeah. And um, how long do we stay? And, and the longer we stay, when we come out of it, how jarring is it to come back to reality, to come back to normalcy? So I think that's a major pitfall, something that, that could be really, really shocking. And the same type of culture shock occurs with me on, on hunts. So I hunted for uh, 60 days straight prior to going into the Marine Corps, lived in this little tiny wall tent, um, bounced around Southwest Montana, and I only came to town a handful of times. And when I was done with that, uh, I had basically forgotten to, how to have conversations, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of culture shock in, in a short yeah. amount of time, relatively, you know, 60 days. So if you then had the experience of say, you know, Teddy Roosevelt's year in Africa, right. And then you come back from that and, and maybe it only took a day. Maybe that was an, an 18 hour um, trip on your VR headset, but you felt like you just experienced an entire in year. Yeah. Um, now you have to come back and I don't know, go to work tomorrow and yeah. send, send emails like, Ooh, that's yeah. going to be jarring. That's going to be really jarring. And I think that about email number three, <laughs> you're going to be like, you know what? I'm going back to Africa. <laughs> yeah, Dude, I, I get that uh, to this day. Like I struggle with that because, you know, I've designed my life to be able to basically check out on September one and not come back until almost end of November. Um, there's a little bit of, you know, like kids and family and all that stuff, but for the most, and there's work in there, but it's always like I'm just putting out fires until I go on the next hunt, essentially, which is, is far different than like the day I get back from my last hunt. And it's like I have to go into grind mode again and work. That's dumb, first of all. <laughs> but it's like it's it's very it takes me a while, man. Like I go through a funk uh, just to get back in that workflow because, you know, I've just basically been gone or like answered to no one answered to nothing and and been in the woods and that's you're 100% right you know you go on a three-week hunt and then you just come back to town and you're like there's so many people they talk so loudly you know just like it's it's a lot to take in it can be depressing I'll say you know it's like these are first world problems everyone's like oh yeah you get to go hunting for three months and then you're depressed about it like oh come on please I see your point and I could see 100% how that could be 10x in a virtual experience for you sure. can go 10 times as longer without even interacting. I mean, even when I like take September, for example, I'm in and out of gas stations quite a bit, see people a little bit, but like if I were to do 21 day stone sheep hunts, like back to back to back, you know, like why come out and why see people like it could, it could really F with our human psychology. Yeah. I think not only could, but, but would. So Let's let's shift gears a little bit for a second and okay. let's look at how wildlife populations and the way um, people have interacted with them in North America have changed in the last couple hundred years. Yeah, um, that's something that we're fairly knowledgeable about. And given 
that information in that trajectory and knowing what we know now, where do you see elk populations being 30 years from now? Um, man, one of the things that concerns me about this era is, um, I'll, I'll use the term urbanism. Um, and you and I have talked about this, but you know, as, and I, I'm hoping this changes, I hope COVID, I hope the internet actually changes us a bit because what we, what we saw in the last, let's say 20 years, maybe 50 years. Oh, no, I'll say in the last 50 to 75 years, we've seen populations grow towards urban centers and a vast majority of the population, let's call it the controlling stake, um, makes decisions based on their life and their life experience. And so we see this, I mean, obviously in Oregon is a great example. You're talking um, about the human population, the human population, right? Yeah. And so we make decisions based on our life experience. And so people from living downtown Portland are now making decisions for James who lives in Eastern Oregon in a ranching community. Right. And so what I'm getting at is like, we've had a strong pull towards urbanism where people want to live in a big city and go recreate. They want to like, Hey, these animals are for my recreating purposes. Now we tend to argue about what exactly that is, whether it's viewing or killing or hunting or whatever. And so that, that shifts a little bit. Um, and so how we view that population has changed over the last hundred years. Right. And so what happens after that. So now I, I'm hoping that we're moving towards people getting away from urban cities. I think COVID has been a huge catalyst for that. Internet jobs have been a big catalyst for that. And maybe, maybe these are just things that ebb and flow. I tend to not get wrapped around the axle about things that are concrete now, but could ebb and flow because everything ebbs and flows, right? Like we go extreme one way, extreme the other. Um, and so I, I, I tend to like have this belief that more people will not like the cities. They'll want to move away from them and move out into the open. And maybe that'll bring them in touch with smaller communities again, like we used to be, you know, we used to be have small communities and it was tight knit. Um, and we got away from that to live in big cities and no one talked to anyone. And I'm hoping that ebbs back the other way to where we have small communities and these things. And so all I'm getting at with this is like human populations, ebb and flow, human interest, ebb and flow. And I think as a result, populations of, let's say the elk and deer, right? Those will change as well. Do you, I mean, do you kind of agree with that as well? I think a lot of what controls our elk and deer populations right now are predators, climate, habitat, and, and agriculture, right? Ag, yep. like we can't understate the value of wild animals, access to agriculture because they're able to get a nutritionally dense food source in an area that's relatively predator free um, yeah. for a lot longer throughout the year because we're able to irrigate it and things like that. So, you know, a lot of our changes in wildlife populations has been because of their access to private land, which has a lot better habitat in, in some regards than, than public land or, or some of these high angle wild places. As we see wildfires becoming more and more of an issue, um, less logging going on, less grazing on on wildlands, uh, I think we're we're losing the value of habitat on on public land. One hundred percent agree with that. Yeah, totally right. And these these burns are starting to get into this hundred year lodgepole cycle, where it burns through everything and then lodgepole grows back super dense and no sunlight can get to the ground. And all it is, is, you know, thermal habitat and, and deep cover 
but it's nutritionally a desert. Um, yeah. So it doesn't host very many animals of any kind at all. So that again, forces these animals down to lower elevations onto private land. As our human population increases and their need for food increases, our willingness to allow for um, wild animal competition will probably go down. So mm -hmm. if we're having a hard time feeding everybody, if there's a food crisis in 2050, which some people are predicting, um, we're not going to have any tolerance whatsoever for elk eating some of that food. Yeah. Right. So that's going to change. Something that's happening right now in Japan is this urbanization of people. So young people are moving to city centers. Um, they don't want to work on the farm anymore. And the population of the agricultural community is aging rapidly. The same thing is happening here to an extent. So Wallowa County, where I live, is an ag community. Cattle is our number one commodity. We you know, raise hay and row crops and other stuff. Cattle is king. We also have the oldest population in the state, right? So you'll see that throughout these ag communities. They're, it's a much older population than in urban communities. In Japan, it's sort of this I am legend type scenario where the wild animals are kind of taking over these small towns. <laughs> Japan had over 150 bear attacks last year. Really? Oh, it's crazy. They have like five bear species. They have a brown bear. People are being attacked and mauled and eaten in Japan at a rate that is 10 times greater than all of the United States. It is insane. That is like, fascinating. Can you imagine? We have like 15 grizzly attacks and people in Wyoming and Montana and Idaho are like, it's over. I'm not going outside anymore. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Imagine 150. Right. In an area much smaller. 150 and basically the, you know, in Wyoming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I think some of that is probably going to occur where, you know, there's going to be yeah. areas that people vacate and the wild animals are like, Hey, thanks for the keys. I'm going to take over now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, dude, it's, it's fascinating stuff. It, like, so this book, um, and I, I really like Kevin Kelly. He's a good author. Um, in his book, the inevitable, it's like, there's so many things you just almost panic. Like it's not a panic. You're like, we this. <laughs> it's like, Oh God, this is not good. You know? And like, I, I don't want, I try, I really try not to be a doomsdayer and be like, man, it's never as bad as people say, but it's never as good as people hope. Uh, you know, and that's, there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, hopefully it lands somewhere in the middle. Uh, the, the other thing like you have, so as technology increases from the farming community, as technology increases, it's, you know, harvesting uh, 5,000 acres, 20,000 acres is not what it used to be a hundred years ago. Like there's nobody doing 20,000 acres, you know, 150 years ago because it wasn't possible. Right. So now with technology, you have almost monopolization of the farming and ag industry, uh, which there's good and bad to that for sure. Um, there's probably more bad than good, but at least you're able to say like, yeah, the, all these old farmers are dying and no one wants their kids don't want to take over their farm. Like I'm a perfect example of that. Right. Uh, I didn't do it. Uh, so there's a lot of that going on, but at the same time you have, you know, I have friends that are basically doubling every year because they're taking over other farms that, couldn't, you know, they don't want to do it anymore. So he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll run your land. But now the technology is there that we can actually be profitable on those acres. Uh, so I won't want to say it's like all bad and like farming is going to go away and there's going to be a, you know, a starvation in, in 2050, but 
I'm also saying it's not the case. <laughs> it's not going to not happen. I well, don't know. I mean, there's going to be more mouths to feed if we continue on the trajectory that we're on. For sure. Uh, yeah, dude, there's some arguments, though. Like, I saw some studies uh, again. So I used to be very much very, very, very worried about um, overpopulation. But there was a study I read that kind of changed my perspective on it. And and that basically we could hit a point where there's not enough people having kids. Um, and there's a, a dip in the cycle that could be very, very harmful to the entire population because we have this giant dip where nobody had kids. And, and inevitably how, and this is kind of Elon's philosophy on things too. Like, realistically, the more people we create, the more inventions we have. And so it does seem doomsday to say like, oh man, there's too many people in this world. How are we going to feed all this? But inevitably, you know, let's say one in a thousand or maybe one in a hundred thousand people is an Elon that invents some crazy ass shit. We need to have a hundred thousand to produce that one that makes up the difference to have that great idea. And sometimes, you know, those ideas are forced because of the situations we're in, you know, and Elon's out there and, and, you know, he's a weird dude, but he's a smart MFer, right? Um, and he comes up with some crazy stuff. Ne- necessity is the mother of, of invention for sure. So if, right, we create right. a, if we create a population crisis, then that crisis should then also create a population solution. And yes. that could be super ugly. We don't know, yeah. um, but w- we'll see. And then you're right, Cody, there are, um, Several European companies, for example, that currently have a a negative population trend right now because yeah. so many people are not having kids. And there are, you know, some other Asian countries, for example, where they're having a ton of kids and, you know, the population's really, really exploding. And it, yeah. it definitely is cultural and it definitely is regional. In the same light, we're seeing this with elk, but it's forced in a different way. So we have elk herds like the the Hell's Canyon elk herd, for example, where they're kind of holding on and the population has has sort of stayed static for, you know, the last 10 years or so, but we're starting to see some declines. But what we're seeing is calf recruitment is really, really low. And that is purely due to predation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That's the biggest influence on calf survival. Now, there, there are other factors that go into that before anybody throws internet stones at me, but you know, <laughs> predators are playing a large role in whether those calves can grow up and become adult elk. What we see is, you know, you take the lifespan of an elk in the wild, um, you know, call that, you know, four or five years for a bull, double that for a cow. And as soon as we hit that point and we haven't had appropriate calf recruitment during that time, then you can see you know, a sharp, sharp drop in the population because the old elk are dying and, you know, there's no young ones to replace them. Yeah. So that's something that could happen with these wildlife populations. Another thing that's going on right now is there is a dramatic increase in interest, engagement, and participation of hunting in the West. So spring bear, <laughs> anyone who says hunting numbers are down, it does not, is confused about that <laughs> statistic. Right. And maybe they are in New Jersey. Maybe they are in, in Vermont. Old state New York. Yeah. Right? I don't know. But what I do know is that the data indicates a much higher level of participation in Western states than what we previously saw. I'll take spring bear in Oregon this year for, for an example. Um, we had 37% more applications for spring bear in 2021 than we did in 2020. 37%. 
37%. And that is our least popular hunt, our least popular yeah. hunt. And, you know, like the Southwest zone, I think there was like a handful of people that didn't draw that uh, last year. I was one of them proud to <laughs> not draw that tag. Congratulations <laughs> to me this year. There was 950. Okay. Two years ago, hundred percent draw every year prior to that hundred percent draw for bears in the Southwest. So, um, Montana, you know, just a few years ago, sold out for the first time ever. And then it's sold out every year since Idaho. Um, you know, they sold out in like 12 minutes in December yeah. this year for all their non-residents. Um, Wyoming cute. is looking at changing their regulations to, to handle this big surge of people. So the resource cannot possibly the resource being the wildlife, they cannot sustain the interest, right? There's mm -hmm. more demand than supply. And that means that if we're going to continue to have engagement and we have to, in order to have people with skills and knowledge about the resource, right? If, yeah. if we're only letting people hunt once every 20 years, then the skill is going to go way down. The knowledge is going to go way down. Yeah. It, it's, it's experiential knowledge. So if we have a situation continue like this, where people get to do it a lot less, they're still going to want to do it or they're going to quit altogether because it's like, is it even worth it to own $20,000 worth of equipment to hunt once every 20 years? Yeah. Right. But no. maybe that's the point where this, this virtual reality thing becomes a really big benefit so that more people can have that experience without exploiting the resource in a negative way. Yeah. What's that? Uh, I was trying to think of it while you're talking. What's the, um, there's a law that in regards to like, I think it's a Scottish thing where um, you overfeed, which killed the entire herd. Um, God, you'll know if I set it off the top of my head, it's killing a golden goose essentially. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's kind of what we're, we're talking about here is like, are we killing the golden goose by like this podcast? Right. And then people or my podcast or your podcast and people wanting to go hunting, yeah, we're ruining our own success with that. You know, like it's, you know, all these guys talking about spring bear hunting and now we can't draw spring bear tags. You know, that's like the most simplest version of it, but it's pretty dang accurate to, to what's going on in the bigger picture. Um, you know, as we think, I don't know, man, are you, are you worried about like the fact that you won't be able to hunt in the future? Yeah. Because yeah. you did, because you told people to do it on your podcast. <laughs> um, I'm definitely a contributor to the problem. Um, yeah. The direction that, that I go is, is education, right? So I think that the educators are something that is lacking within hunting. And that's why I've always tried to be really upfront about um, sharing the knowledge that I have about, about wildlife, about species and, and how to engage with them in a sustainable and positive way. But in doing so, you know, I've definitely introduced a lot of people to the sport who are now you know, putting a higher demand on this finite resource. Yeah. So I'm, I'm contributing to it. Um, I hope in a positive way, but I guarantee also in a negative way. Yeah. I think we have a great responsibility to give this a lot of careful consideration and make sure that we are not trying to make a short-term gain that causes a long-term problem. Yeah. And I mean, obviously I think uh, back again and talk about ebb and flow. These things are going to ebb and flow. People are going to get into hunting and then when they can't draw tags, they're going to get back out or, you know, there's, you know, things that'll move that needle back and forth per se. So do I think like we're all going to get into hunting and then there'll be no more hunting for the rest of eternity? No, I promise you 
a lot of these people getting into it, I'll say six, at least 60%, probably closer to 80% of these people are going to not find success, get burnout and go find a new hobby. Like humans are really good at that, man. We just bounce around looking for some hobby that's going to change our life. And when it turns out to be harder than the internet told us it was going to be, we freaking don't do it anymore. You know, that's pretty common. I think, you know, guys like you and I have hunted our entire life and this is all we know, all we want to do. We've already found that most people, let's call it 80, 80% of people are going to come into it. It's not going to be what we chalked it up to. It's going to be harder and they're going to quit. Like that's just human nature. And I do believe that. So I do think we're going to see a giant influx and then a regression. I think about that in a capacity of like, how could, how could a virtual reality help hunting or help the deer populations and make it easier. So if 80% of people are going to get in and then quit, what if I could get 80% to do a one week virtual hunt and it's way easier and there's, you know, we're still getting those dollars and those dollars are going to helping the herds and also keeping, you know, I don't know, whatever it may be, right? Like there's a way to make all of these things a win-win. You just have to look out for some giant potholes in the middle of the road though. And I, I think that's kind of one of the things I always get at is like, there's a lot of people in this industry or in this world that preach one thing, but I think there's a lot of potholes that they're not seeing. And I'm not saying I'm the expert, but I, I tend to think about like, okay, why are we having that conversation? What is the, what is the downside of that? How does the butterfly effect turn out in 20 years after you do that? So a lot of people want to say, I don't know, let's, let's take, for example, um, it's kind of a big conversation. Those at HB 417, right? And everyone instantly is like bad bill. Like you're, this is so bad, blah, blah, blah. HB was basically saying, what, what is that bill? So HB, HB 417 was essentially saying that any of these units, um, like the bear paws who are way over objective, let's make them over the counter because you're over objective. You can't have a trophy bull hunt. Now, obviously that's ridiculous. I'm not, I'm not in favor of that. And this is a deep rabbit hole because I think there's a hell of a lot more going on behind the scenes than what the internet wants to play. Um, but when I see that and I see a ridiculous bill, <clears throat> I tend to think like, why is that a conversation? Why are we thinking that way? And what are, what are, what are we not seeing? Right. A lot of people just want to say, Oh, this is bad for hunting. This is, you know, we need to kill trophy bulls. But I always look at things as if, if the ranchers aren't happy, if, if it's not mutually exclusive for all parties, it's not going to last very long, right? It has to work for everyone. And so in my, I am not for HB 417 um, in any way, shape or form before people throw internet stones at me. But at the same time, I'm like, why did that get introduced? That's so extreme, right? Well, let's look at it this way. If a unit is 3000 elk over objective, is the biologist doing their job? And are ranchers going to be happy about those populations? Like take uh, Eastern Oregon, for example, like ranchers are real freaking tired of elk because they eat the hell out of uh, their crops and everyone in the state wants more and more and more elk. But they're like, well, you guys have already effed up your public ground. It's terrible feed. So they're just coming down to ours to eat in our feed. And, you know, and the entire population of let's say Portland, just like, well, we just want to go hunting and kill elk on public ground. But it's like, this, this relationship, this, this whole thing is not going to work very long unless it's mutually exclusive or mutually beneficial to multiple parties. 
So yeah. like, I just try to like, look at the bigger picture on everything. Like, why are we having this conversation? What are the downsides in a 10 year effect and a 50 year effect? And how do we make this beneficial for all parties? And we have to, we have to place a value on these animals that has a value for everyone who's affected by the animals. 100%. And, you know, that's what we see with uh, wildlife policy in Africa all the time. It's like, Hey, you know, we, we want to ban elephant hunting because we oppose the ivory trade. Yeah. I oppose the ivory trade too. Okay. So you ban elephant hunting. Now poaching takes off because the ivory trade still exists and the elephants are still getting killed. Um, but the value to the locals there who are very, very poor people who have, you know, they're out there with a freaking musket and, and some wire trying to, <laughs> you know, either snare or, or shoot elephants. Um, you know, they're, they're not making $150,000 on a set of ivory tusks. Like they're making just enough to stay poor and keep doing it. Yeah. Right. Um, so then if you allow commercial hunting, okay, now we're pouring say $15,000 out of $150,000 back into this community. And now this family who just had their home and all their crops destroyed by elephants in a single night and are potentially looking at not having enough food to make it through the year. Now they've got a little bit of money and they can go buy some food. Okay. Yeah. In, a, in a perfect world, that's how it works. And, and that's great. And that can be a real benefit to, to all the wildlife. Um, now, if you look at elk, people have this real, really delusional sense of, of hunting being positive. So if I say, man, I'm just getting crushed by elk right now, they're coming in and they're eating 4,000 pounds of of hay every single night, you know, they're tearing down fences. I can tell that to a Portland hunter and they're like, well, do you allow hunting? And, you know, I do, but somebody else might say, no, I'm like, no, I don't. And they're like, well, why? Like, well, because there's 250 head of elk coming in. And if you come in and shoot one of them, that doesn't significantly change my losses. But what it probably will do is cause a 250 head of elk stampede through barbed wire fence, which costs $10,000 a mile to make. They're like, yeah. well, I'll come out and fix fence. You don't know how. You don't know how. That's a profession. Um, and you're not going to fix a mile of it. You know, like my dad's place had over 100 miles of fence. Okay. The amount of elk that were causing damage to his fences every year was absolutely incredible. This is a huge, huge financial factor. And when people come in, especially, you know, people from urban centers, hunters without a lot of experience, not using silencers, things like that, man, they cause a stampede when they shoot one of those elk and it causes much more damage than they prevented. And I, yeah. I think that people don't necessarily realize that. No. It, yeah, for sure. And you look at, I really like the idea behind some of these BMA programs. I don't think we're there. I think, man, I really wish someone with, I wish some smart people would tackle problems that don't have the most dollars. Right. So, you know, back to the Elon example, like he tackles big problems because it pays big dollars. I think you know, when it gets to this issue that landowners have with uh, elk versus people, I think people underestimate how damaging or how much of a pain in the ass it is to deal with the, the population. You know, maybe it's not you, maybe it's not me, but at, at large, when you say, Hey, I'm just going to let the whole public onto my place, it almost creates as much damage as the elk did. So you're like, I'm damned if I do, I'm damned if I don't, you know, and I, 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 that's one of these things. It's like, 
that's a big problem that needs solved. We need to figure out how to make mutually beneficial between landowners and hunters. And, you know, but at the end of the day, like, let's just be honest, most of the public doesn't care. You know, they treat other people's land like it's a rental car. And, you know, most people treat public land like it's a rental car. Let's be honest. Like, I don't, you don't, but a lot of people do. And that's the problem is like, you know, like why, well, you know, if someone needs uh, a car, why don't you just give them your car? You'd be like, ah, I really don't want my car destroyed. You're just not going to treat it the same way as I do. Well, guess what? That's the same thing for landowners, you know? Um, and that's just something we, we need to solve. It's a big problem. I, there's a lot of politics involved with fishing game issues. There's a lot of pop, pop, politics between even population management. Right. Um, but when it comes down to it, it's like, <clears throat> I really just think it's tough, but we need to figure out a way to make this a cohesive working system for all parties involved. And that's where I think this industry bastardizing private land, bastardizing private land owners is only a net negative, 100% a net negative. Yep. I agree. Um, you know, Kurt Melcher, the director of Oregon Department of Fish and Wild, Wildlife said it took him a long time to figure this out, but he said within wildlife policy, everyone is advocating for their own fair advantage. Yep. And that is <laughs> such a funny and, you know, he, he smiles in like a really terrifying and beaten down way when he says it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there are very few people out there, if any at all, who are legitimately trying to advocate so that everybody has the same slice of the pie. Yeah. Um, and uh, the reality it's not, is, it's not you know, no, it's not. It's not. It's really not. And I don't know if it's even beneficial. I think that you do have to manage for for what benefits you the most, but you have to do so in a way that takes into account everything else because what benefits you the most legitimately is a great benefit for everybody. Like yeah. if everybody's winning, then you are winning more than if you were the only one winning. Yeah. When it comes well, to policy issues like this. <clears throat> Here's a, here's a great example. Like people don't think about this, but uh, let's take a unit. Let's take a trophy unit, right? That's got trophy bulls and people love hunting trophy bulls. Well, that unit's, let's say 3000 elk over objective and it's putting farmers out of business. Okay. Now a farmer goes out of business. There's no more ag. There's no more land. There's no more seclusion, you know, for these animals to get big. And now probably the population is going to be reduced significantly. The age class is going to be reduced significantly. So you who are like F the farmer, put them out of business. You know, they, they just take government subsidies. I love that one. Uh, they just take government subsidies, blah, blah, blah. blah. And, and then uh, you know, I just want to kill big elk and nobody lets me hunt. Like, well, the irony, Oh, the irony is like, <laughs> <laughs> like, do you see how this plays out over a 20 year effect? Like take away all the ranchers, see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> No, mine, 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 mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't know. I'm not, I'm not trying to bash anyone. I just think that, you know, it's important to think things through, like, how does that affect? Um, and this is, you know, circle back on the whole uh, virtual reality thing. Like, what is the cause and effect of that? I don't know yet. I think it would be fun to put together uh, a study group or a, uh, you know, a group of guys that could, think this through. I would love to sit down with some virtual reality folks and talk about some of the macro issues 
and some of the micro long-term effects. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of studies done on this in, in other realms and spheres and say, you know, what does this do to a resource? Hunting is very unique in that aspect though, because we're talking about a natural resource that we're exploiting to some degree. And if we switch that to a virtual world, what does that look like? I don't know, man. There's some big, big questions there. Big bowels for sure. So there's an, here's another aspect I want to talk about, and this is predictability algorithms. And that's basically the way computers predict weather. And yep. in some, some places it's better than others. I feel like the computers that get relegated to predicting weather in Eastern Oregon are the worst. Um, we have the worst weather prediction of anywhere <laughs> I've ever been in my life. It's good for like four hours, maybe. <laughs> I can't tell you the number of times I, you know, pull up a weather app and it's like, uh, you know, skiff of snow, maybe tomorrow. And I'll look outside and I can't see five feet because of the <laughs> downpour. Um, mm. But anyways, predictability algorithms. So we know that our phones are listening to us all the time. And that's why if you have a conversation about something, then um, an item that you could buy pops up in your social media feed soon mm. afterwards. Okay. Um, we also are using apps like Onyx, Basemap, um, whatever. So these things are helping you navigate, but they also have the ability to, to track everywhere you go. And then you're also using your phone to take pictures of things as you go. So um, the AI that lets us search for things in our photos, that's getting better all the time. So pretty soon yeah. that AI is going to be able to make assumptions about you know, where you are and the conditions of where you are and overlay that with the weather and the moon phase and all the other things that go into it. And then it's going to see that you actually got to call in a bull. Um, you know, you're hearing a bugle. It's going to be able to interpret, you know, what that bugle is. And then you actually get an arrow in that bull and kill him and you go and take pictures of it. The AI is going to be able to analyze a lot about that bull from that. And then we take all this information from all these hunters out there and eventually we're going to be able to create a predictability algorithm so that when you pay, you know, the low, low fee of $175,000 a year for um, Onyx Ultra Supreme, yeah, then it's going to be able to say, hey, dude, you need to be right here at this time because there's going to be a bull elk that walks through there given these conditions. Yeah. Um, so you can have a weather forecaster for the location of animals as, as we go, this, this is like near fight technology. Okay. This would not be that far away as soon as all of these things start talking to each other a little bit more, just a little bit more. Yeah. So how do we limit technology in a way that doesn't overly exploit the resource, but also how do we embrace technology that helps sustain the resource and reduces things like wounding of wildlife, which is, um, you know, largely wasteful. Yeah, no, this, this is a, man, this is a deep conversation. So, uh, let's take the Garmin, uh, site, for example. Um, and you know, you've kind of changed my mind on that and that like, man, just think of the number of elk that aren't wounded. Um, how many people shoot two or three elk a year? Um, and the question becomes, and I, there's certain things that have popped up throughout, you know, over the years that I'm like, ah, I'm anti, you know, right. Uh, but I also don't want to be a Luddite. Um, there's like, let's, let's pick on trad bow hunters, for example, like trad bow hunters like to pick on uh, compound hunters because, you know, they're, you know, 
there's cable guns and you're just killing too many elk, but how many elk do trad bow hunters wound and never find, you know? So like there's, there's this weird argument and this goes, I think this is kind of where my head was at when we were talking about, you know, the, the trolley cart problem. And so you really have to boil it down into, is this hurting the numbers long-term or is it helping the numbers long-term? things like that. You know, you get to the AI where it's like, it's a hundred percent success rate. We're like, and we increase the, the rates to 85 or 90%. How many hunters can we, do we have to reduce now? And so that's to me, if it's a simple numbers game, but it's not that easy. Right. So let's just say hypothetically 10% success rate in, in, in a unit, uh, average elk hunter. Right. But technology as it increases, increases that to 20. So now that we, it's a simple numbers game, if you're a biologist, but it's, it's probably not that simple, but it's like, okay, 10% of hunters are successful. I put a hundred hunters in the woods, 10 are successful. I want to take out, I want to limit to about 10 elk per year out of this unit. That means I can only allow hundred tanks, simple math, right? Now we increase success rates to 20%. Okay. That means I only, I have to bring it back to 80 hunters. 50%. Now I'm at 50 hunters per year. So we're reducing how many people get to do the activity, right? Simple math. Yep. Um, and so, but then you have things like, let's take the Garmin site, for example, for anyone that doesn't know, basically the Garmin site reduces the need to have to range an animal. So anyone who's archery hunted elk knows that oh, I range that animal and he takes, you know, six steps, 10 steps, uh, or I didn't have time. So I just didn't range them. And I guessed you should narrow it hit somewhere. I don't know where it hit and I lose him onto the next elk. Right. Um, and for all those people are like, Oh, I would never, that happens a lot. Um, I think there's more people doing that than it will admit it. So the Garmin gives the ability to like, Hey, range at full draw. And there's people who are like, Oh, we shouldn't have that technology. This is BS. But if we just look at the net numbers and say, yeah, these reports say that people only killed 10 elk. But like, I would love to know how many are wounded and died, how many uh, people just shot another elk or whatever. And maybe that's, maybe it doesn't change the number. Maybe it's not as big as we think. Uh, maybe the net of a Garmin site means it, the average increase is up to 20%. But without the Garmin site, the wounded elk that die realistically only puts it at a 12%. And the reason I say 12% is like, there's a few extra elk that get killed that were wounded and then someone killed another elk, but by and large, uh, there's only a small number of elk that are wounded and people actually got another shot. Does that, does that make a little bit of sense? Oh yeah, totally. So I'll, I'll give you an example of an optic that does not currently exist. Um, so let's say there's a scope that uses a lot of available technology now. So this scope can identify an animal. It can communicate with an electric trigger and a gun. So the scope is going to determine when the gun goes off and it will only break a shot when the crosshairs are at the exact point that they need to be at in order to execute an absolutely perfect shot on that animal. And yep. it's taking in all of the atmospheric data. You know, it's using technology that already exists to determine the wind speed and direction between you and the target by, you know, analyzing the direction and speed of dust particles in the air, things like that. So this thing is absolutely perfect. It's going to fire you know, a great bullet right where it needs to be. Um, and I think a lot of people would be like, oh, that's cheating. That's not fair. Like it's very fair to the animal, very fair to yeah. the animal because yeah. now he or, or she, whatever it, the animal 
gets the absolute quickest and cleanest and most ethical death that we could possibly give it the, the least amount of suffering. But people will be like, well, then people are going to shoot too far. Ah, maybe not. How far is too far? Well, 300 <laughs> yards, let's say 300 yards. All right. I'll, you know, punch that and zeros and ones into this computer algorithm. And now the scope will only function out to 300 yards. Yeah. Do you have a problem with that? Sure. Yes. Guaranteed. <laughs> Some people are going to have a problem with that. The Garmin site does something similar already. So yeah. people think, okay, well, you know, this, this thing is, you know, you range find with it and it just moves the dots wherever you need to be. People are going to be shooting too far. That site will only let you shoot at a range that you've practiced at. So if you've only practiced out to 40 yards and an animal steps out at 51 and you range him, the site just tells you to pound sand and take 11 steps towards him right? Yeah. It's not going to give you a solution because it says you don't have the skills to be able to make this shot. You haven't proven it to the site that you can make this shot. The so other thing I like about that, the thing I like about that is it allows you to set a precedent of what your moral standard should be and not in the heat of the moment. So we as humans tend to make rash decisions in the heat of battle, correct? So if we oh, can yeah. predetermine, if we can predetermine that and say like, Hey, listen, Hey, listen, site. Hey, you, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Hey, don't let me do anything dumb when I'm drunk tonight is essentially what you're telling a site, you know, like you're, I don't want to make decisions in the heat of battle. So I don't want to shoot over 50 yards. That's a conscious decision that I will make. And don't let me do it. And that's interesting because now you're like, uh, I'm not, I, I'm not going to do it, but I promise you this happens all the time. People will sit there and say, I never shoot over 40. I never shoot over 50, 360 bull steps out the, you know, it's at 40 stumble step, whatever moves over here. Now I got a shit shot at 65. And now you're trying to make that moral decision at full draw on 65 on a quartering two elk. There's a lot of people that make a bad decision there in the heat of battle. And a lot of people will tell you up front, like, oh, I would never shoot past 40 yards unless it was the bull of a lifetime. Like, <laughs> what? What changed? The length of his tines? That changed yeah. your ability to shoot accurately in a yeah. positive way? No, sir. No, it did not. <laughs> yeah, no, 100%. Um, and so that's interesting, right? Um, but I, I think it just has to boil down to a numbers game of what are we willing to increase those odds to, or the success rates to, and reduce the overall number of hunters to what is the, what's the carrying capacity there is what we're asking, you know, like, mm, like, well, let's dumb it down. Like it, it, this is like the argument of, you know, ballistic BC on bullets. Like, should we make it illegal to have a ballistic BC of a certain amount because that's too, too lethal? Like that seems yeah. ridiculous, yeah. which is exactly what they do when it comes to muzzle loaders, by the way. <laughs> sure. And then you take, you know, Idaho and I think like you can't shoot, you can't hunt with a 14 pound gun, like scope, bipod, everything. Like yeah. they have a, a limit on how much a gun can weigh because they don't want me to take my, you know, accuracy international 22 pound, 300 wind mag out there and shoot with it because there's an assumption that a heavier gun is built to perform at longer range. Right. Um, yeah. So does that mean that somebody isn't going to take a 300 wind mag that weighs 10 pounds and try and make the same shot that I can make better with my 22 pound gun? Yeah. Um, so we but have also to at large, I do think that you can't police morality. I think that gets into a slippery slope when the government yeah. wants to tell you what your morals are. I disagree with that. Super slippery slope. 
Um, I think you've got to do it for yourself and you've got to base it on data that's available. So take the, the SIG BDX scope, right? It has a feature called Kinetic and you can put in your own governor for how far you feel comfortable um, shooting according to either velocity or energy. And so you say you're shooting nozzle or acubons and you pick up the box and it says, all right, this bullet will not function properly at speeds less than 1800 feet per second. So you go into your app, you go 1800 feet per second and that elk steps out there at, you know, 480 yards and you just dip down to 1780 feet per second. Um, it's not going to give you a, a ballistic solution to make that shot. Um, and that's, tricky math to do in the field. Admittedly, yeah. that's a very tricky math to do in the field. And it's going to change um, based on the atmospherics at the time. So you can't just write it down at home and be like, oh, my number is 461 yards. Um, because that's, that's going to change. Because if you get a low elevation, high humidity, cold weather shot, you know, now you might be down to 430 yards, for example. I don't know. Um, but if this is the red line, at 1800 feet per second, this bullet will not function properly enough to kill this animal correctly. Then you, you need, you need a computer to help you with that. It's too difficult to do on the fly. <laughs> and I think that there's tremendous benefit to that. Now with that technology comes some other features that make it illegal to use in a bunch of States because <laughs> yeah. there's a big fear of technology. And it's like, okay, that gives you too much of an advantage over the animal. Um, and trying to draw these lines, especially when we legislate it and create a law that says you cannot use this, boy, that's tricky because we don't know where this technology is going. We don't. Yeah. Um, yeah, by and large, it's like, I, I'm against government regulation of morality. Um, I think that's a slippery slope. Do I think it's the easiest way to, to make a line in the sand? Absolutely. It's way easier than trying to convince the public or mass mass amounts of people that this is not ethically. Okay. Um, that's a fuck. that's a deep well, like, let's, <laughs> let's, let's take uh, let's take crossbows. I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm not sure how I feel about this yet. You know, like there's um, and I get it. I get both sides. I don't, I get both sides of the conversation. I will say that. Um, I was having a conversation with South Cox cause he had posted something and, and we were texting back and forth and you know, he's like, I usually don't get any of these things, but he's like, man, crossbow technology is ridiculous. It's gotten so small, you know, it's basically like shooting a rifle, uh, you know, and now it's legal in some States on, on archery hunts. You know, what's your thought on that? Um, dude, I am so okay with crossbows. I feel like somebody using a crossbow during archery season doesn't change my experience as a bow hunter at all. Yeah. At all. Um, and that's the way I, I try to look at these things. It's like, does this change my experience? Does this change, you know, other people's experiences? And like in Oregon, you can't use a crossbow at all. You cannot do it. Okay. Um, it doesn't matter what your physical disabilities are. You can't do it. So I take, you know, one of the hunters that, that I brought out rifle hunting this year, he would love to be able to hunt during archery season and who wouldn't, right? That's a yeah. magical time of year to hunt elk, but this guy is missing one arm and two legs. All right. He ain't drawing a bow. He's not, Yeah, he's not, <laughs> um, he could shoot a crossbow, yeah. you know, he could have that experience. And how does that guy going out and hunting elk probably from a blind Okay. Maybe walking around a little bit, not too far. Yeah. Right. How does him using a crossbow 
become a negative for elk hunting and for other archery elk hunters? I don't think it does. Yeah. I, I mean, that- the, the argument is the masses. So I would yeah. say the, I mean, the argument is that like, Oh, the success rates is going to kill too many. And then we're going to reduce tag numbers. So first and foremost, the argument that uh, we should create another season for crossbows is retarded because they're going to have to pull it from somewhere and pull tags from somewhere. And until the day, no offense to crossbow hunters, but I've yet to have a bull killed out from under me at 9,000 feet, 10 miles back in the back country where there's a crossbow hunter. Like Let's, let's just call a spade a spade. Yeah. I don't think there's a lot of dudes out there that are super hardcore that are like carrying their crossbow, you know, 10 miles back in the Wyoming wilderness and, and slaying elk. I mean, there's probably one or two, but like, again, it's not changing my experience, like how I choose to do things. So, you know, I think uh, it comes back to the adage that like bullying is useful. Like I'm going to still make fun of bow hunters or crossbow hunters. Right. And I don't want it to be popular. I don't want everyone to be like, oh, it's cool to use a crossbow. So that's a little bit why we have, uh, I don't call it bullying, but like teasing. Right. Uh, so in you go back to tribes. Right. And we want to keep those people out of our tribe. We're like, yeah, well, you did it with a crossbow. I'm going to I'm going to downplay your accomplishment so that maybe like more people won't want to do it uh right or wrong i don't know uh but i just don't see like he's i doesn't change my experience am i gonna go kill one so i i kill one with a crossbow probably not um i wouldn't mind killing an elk with a crossbow just to, to have done it like if there was a you know as robert hannon would say if there was a rock where i could throw or a season where i could throw rocks at elk i might take that tag too just to say i did it um you know so i might want to do it someday but i I promise you, if I was about to kill a giant bull, I would not want to have a crossbow. It's the same thing with a rifle, you know, like to me doing it with a rifle versus doing it with a bow, I hold a little bit higher regard for when I kill something with a bow, right or wrong. I know you're like, why not use the most effective weapon? Yeah. And when it comes to getting meat, if I go, if I go late season, I'm just going to kill an elk for, to feed the family. Like, I don't care what size it is. I don't care if I use the bow or use a rifle, I'm just getting meat. Like it's a meat getting mission at that point. So long story short is like, I, I don't think it has a huge effect. I can see how people are concerned that success rates are going to skyrocket and then it's going to reduce the number of tags and they're not going to be able to hunt. Um, I just don't see that happening at least not quickly. Yeah. I'll take it a couple directions with the crossbow thing. Um, one, if I saw somebody in like sure enough backcountry where it takes them more than a day to get to where they're hunting, shoot an elk with a crossbow or anything with, it can be a, I would be impressed pine squirrel with a crossbow. I'm going to give that guy a crisp high five because <laughs> that is kind of gangster. <laughs> and it's like, this isn't like a super modern weapon. I'm pretty sure crossbows have been around since the 1400s or somewhere in that zone. Like, yeah, it's been a minute. Okay. They're you know, much, much older than, than the compound bow. Um, yeah. and of course the compound crossbows, whatever. Okay. Crossbows have been around a minute. The other thing is I'm not a fabulous bow shot by any means, but, uh, if somebody feels like they're, you know, King Kong with crossbow, I'll step onto a 3d course with anybody with a crossbow and let's go head to head. Legitimately. If, if you think you're great with a crossbow, you, you may be, but I don't think you're going to beat me on a 3D course simulating hunting conditions. I don't think so. No, I think you're right. I would love, I would love to see someone who's just like the crossbow guy. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go do total archery. Yeah. Go. Are you even going to make it off the mountain with that thing? 
You know, are you going to hold up a nine pound crossbow and take offhand shots on 30 targets at weird angles throughout the day? You know, we're trying to sweat out the booze from the night before. Like, no way, no way. I'm going to win. I think I'm going to win. Um, so <laughs> I'll take, I'll take somebody on there, you know, with a rifle thing. I was talking with uh, Jake Love from SIG Optics about this yesterday, and he is of the same opinion of you that, you know, he places more value on the intimacy of an archery hunt than of a rifle hunt. And it's for him, it's about the distance that those shots occur over. And I, I agree. I think that hunting from close range is a much more intimate experience. But just because your gun can shoot a long ways doesn't mean that it has to. Right. Yeah. So we go back to, um, you know, John, John Chatelain, right. Um, that guy shoots everything with a gun at archery range. Okay. That's really cool. Yeah. So he has the greatest degree of lethality and then he has the intimacy of close range hunting. Like my mountain goat that I shot this year in Kodiak was at 40 yards. Yeah. I, that's archery range. Like <laughs> that's my archery range. I could have done that. I had another one at 11 <laughs> yards. I could have shot it with my 10 mil. Right. Yeah. That would have been really cool, but it's, it's just a really interesting thing that people tend to say, well, you can shoot this gun out to three or 400 yards. So when you get that opportunity, you take it. And I don't think that people are wrong in doing that, but if they want that intimacy, if they want that close range experience, like if you slip into 30 yards and, and shoot that bowl with a 300 wind mag, I think that you're going to have a really positive experience for yourself um, yeah. and very, very fulfilling. And then you also did right by that animal by limiting the possibility that he's going to get wounded and die a slow death and not be, you know, consumed by you. Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree. You know, it's like I've hunted with my sharps during rifle seasons. Am I like, everyone else has to use a open sights because I only want to use open sights you know, but does it change my experience because I had to get within 150 yards and they only had to get to 250? <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a slippery slope, and it, but again, it, it boils down to like, why, why do I do it? And how can I share that experience or, you know, help people guide people to that experience? Maybe um, I don't only hunt to go fill the freezer. Sorry, if I did, it would be really easy and I'd, you know, it wouldn't take me very long. It's just yeah. not why I do it. So, uh, there's a lot of freaking reasons and it's really in depth. And, it, you know, it's a analogous, analogous, analogous. What's that word? Analogous. <laughs> yeah. No. Analogous. Analogous to uh, <laughs> hip hop anonymous. <laughs> hip -hop anonymous. <laughs> well, it's analogous to like life as whole, right? Like I love these experiences. I love uh, the highs and lows essentially. Um, and so whether you do it with a crossbow or a bow, don't really care whether, you know, you believe you can shoot a thousand yards or you believe you can shoot 500 yards. Uh, go for it. Do it. You know, try, yep. try your best. I really, I don't, I think it's a slippery slope to have government regulation over all of those things. Now, granted, there has to be some, there has to be some guidelines, obviously. Yep. There does. Um, but we need to be really careful about, about how we do it. Mm -hmm. Um, so the conversations we've been having today, Cody, are, are, are fun and interesting. Um, they're largely hypothetical. We don't have all the information that we could possibly have to, to be talking about this. But I really encourage people to think about 
these conversations on their own and have them with the people around them. Like, where is this all going? And don't just think about what opportunities am I going to have this year under these conditions? Like really think big picture, think deep fight and uh, have these conversations. Cause it's fun. It's fun to think yeah. about where it's all going for sure. And like, what, what's the butterfly effect of that decision? You know, and how maybe does this decision ebb and flow with life? You know, like how could this swing the pendulum? And, you know, so instead of it being like, oh my God, crossbows are everything, like what trends could happen? Because all these things ebb and flow. What are the consequences? Um, think outside of the box. Don't just freaking believe something that someone tells you because they sound intelligent. I That's number one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Think for yourself. Yeah. As much as possible. And, uh, Read a book every once in a while. There's what's your there's, book recommendation of the podcast besides the inevitable? God, there was one I was thinking of. Oh, I know what it is. Okay, you go first. Uh, Stephen Pine, a short or a brief history of fire. Because we were talking about burns, and you want to talk about a book that'll make you like, damn it, the world's ending. That book, <laughs> Stephen Pine, uh, a brief history of fire. It's only like 16 hour audiobook. So, you know, just a short read. Okay. Um, I'm going to go. I'm going to go a little bit different direction. Okay. I'm going to say the Pacific Crest Trail Handbook. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. So if you want to learn how people that hike for, you know, a couple thousand miles at a, at a whack do it and what they bring with them and what they don't, uh, then that's a great one to read because you will learn so many lessons that will get way out of your pack without breaking the bank. It'll just make you that much more effective in the backcountry. Nice. I like it. Talk to me uh, real quick about what's new with backcountry fuel box. Um, I don't know what is new with backcountry fuel box. Uh, we launched, I don't know if I can say, I'll say it, whatever. Uh, we launched like this new affiliate program. Um, that's pretty exciting. Uh, so for like content creators, like Mm. being the guy that's both sides of that fence, like a content creator for other people, uh, we hire content creators and I've always wanted to have like a really fair system. And so working on that. So if anybody interested in making some money while helping promote the box and, and kind of a cool product and doing those things, like, hit me up, ask me about it. Um, yeah. So I guess that just like popped in my head. I don't know if that's applicable to the conversation, but that's what I'm working on this week. Uh, crushing that and yeah, just kind of growing that some other cool things, but I can't talk about, but yeah, lots of projects. I no trade shows this year. So I feel like I'm uber productive and like just in the office, like getting systems built. So that's kind of where we're at. Nice. And uh, for those who are uninitiated, what is Backcountry Fuel Box? Backcountry Fuel Box, a uh, awesome way to... <laughs> that's a terrible start to... Uh, Backcountry Fuel Box is a... Uh, <laughs> Call me off guard. Uh, it's, it's like a subscription box for backcountry meals, snacks, bars, all those kinds of foods. If you like snacks, you'll like the box. It's uh, We send you a box full of goodies. It's like Christmas morning when you open it and you're like... Oh, kind of goodies did I get? You eat half of it in garage and then you feel bad about yourself because you ate. <laughs> yeah. Essentially, that hit that one on the head. <laughs> it's it's like a, a shoe box full of food that you would eat if you were backpacking or hunting off of a backpack 
or uh, or hanging out at home and you hadn't been to the grocery store in a while <laughs> that shows up once a month. It's a pretty good deal. <laughs> uh, 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 some of the guys do like they always tell me like, yeah, I get my backcountry fuel box. It goes in my truck and that's my snacks for like the next week because I just like get bored and hungry and I eat them, whatever's in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Either way. It's happened to me. I've, I've seen it happen. <laughs> All right, buddy. It's always good chatting with you, man. You too. I'll catch you later. All right, later. This episode is brought to you by Stanley. It's that iconic hammer tone green thermos that women filled with soup while they were building B-17s. And men used to carry coffee when they flew those bombers into combat. It's that faded stainless steel bottle that's seen more trees felled and calves branded and barbed wire stretched than any living man. Six generations of Americans have been using Stanley to keep their coffee hot and their beer cold. They have a 100% leak-proof lifetime guarantee, and now it's not just the old green thermos. They have camp cookware, drinkware for that evening scotch, coolers, and some sweet titanium bottles that are light enough you'll throw one in your pack when you go hunting. I love a company that lasts by making gear that lasts. And if you are anything like me, you will also appreciate gear that's more likely to end up in your will than a landfill. I'm not offering a promo code where I get a kickback because that just isn't my style. But they do have a sale starting today, March 1st, over at Stanley1913.com. Check it out. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.